Gracious God, we ask that as we read the word now, that you would give us ears that would hear, eyes that would see Christ, and hearts that would do your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read from Matthew 13, verse 53. It's page 980 in the Pew Bibles. When Jesus had finished these parables. Now immediately you've got to ask a question. What are these parables? Correct? Good. Graham's nodding. What are these parables? So flick back to the start of chapter 13. And we see that this has been a unit of parables. These parables. Chapter 13 verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. So that's where the unit starts. Are you with me? It then finishes in our verse, verse 53. When Jesus had finished all these parables. So if you flick through chapter 13, you've seen the parable of the sower then the parable of the weeds, then the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, then the parable of the weeds explained, then the hidden treasure, the precious pearl, the parable of the net, then our text. Now look with me at what comes before these parables at the end of chapter 12. We're still waggling on the tea, we're still warming up, still resonating the bowl. Chapter 12, verse 46, when Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, these parables... Immediately before, you have this episode where Jesus is redefining who family is. And there is a distinction. His mother and his brothers outside, him and his disciples inside. There is a distance between his blood family and his disciple family. Do you see? Yes? So, these parables distance from his family. Then... Our text for today. So let's keep reading. Chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there, but because, because of their lack of faith. So, these parables, most of chapter 13, immediately before, distance from his family, immediately after, dishonored in his hometown. 
What is Matthew doing as he puts these things together? The wedge between his rejection by his family and his rejection from his hometown. Matthew's making a point. He's saying these parables, the truth about God's kingdom, have a massive impact, have a divisive impact upon a disciple's family and a disciple's community. Jesus doesn't get the Andy Murray treatment when he comes back to Dunblane. There's not a street party. They don't paint pillar blocks as strange colors. It is dishonor. Why? Well, flick back with me. This is still big picture Matthew, chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus has said, Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's the narrative. That's the story of Matthew's gospel. Actually, when you become a Christian, there can be sharp division between your family and your community. And here, this section in Matthew's Gospel, the family rejection, the community rejection, is divided by the parables. What parables? Well, the parable of the sower. What does that parable teach us? The seed is a sword that divides. The different impact that the seed has divides and may divide even your family and your community. What about the parable of the pearl that's in these parables? Well, the pearl has a price, right? And the price of the pearl might be everything. That everything might include your family and your community. The seed is a sword. The price of the pearl may be your family and those closest to you. From this moment in Matthew's gospel, there is a progressive polarization. There is this wedge of division between Jesus and his disciples and the rest of the world that becomes ever bigger as he approaches the cross. And so Matthew writes what is an apologetic and evangelistic tool for his fellow Jews, but also a discipleship manual for Christians. And he says to us, listen, if the king of this kingdom of heaven, which is the repeated phrase in chapter 13, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, if the king of the kingdom of heaven has no house or home, if he is rejected at house and home, what should his subjects, his followers expect? Do you see the big point? It's interesting, isn't it? Family, community, The seed is a sword. So what I want to do this morning is just to apply that, to push that so that we feel it. I thought about doing the kind of three points thing so you can have power demonstrated, um, pedigree questioned, um, what else? Profit dishonored, three Ps, so you can take notes if you want. But we're not going to do that. We're just going to say, how do we push this in terms of application? So let me speak to you first, if you're a Christian. What does this mean? Firstly, don't be surprised. Don't be taken aback if insults and ostracism 
and cold shoulder and offense is taken by your Christianity. If you find that when you walk into the office or when you go to a family reunion that you are the awkward person in the room, don't be surprised. Christ's rejection at Nazareth normalizes patterns similar rejection in his followers. We ought to expect distance and dishonor. One of the most recent converts in Nidri is from one of the most tight-knit families I have ever come across. But since he's become a Christian, he's been distanced and dishonored in his own house. And that was typified when he came to us a couple of months ago, distraught because his mum didn't send a 40th birthday card to his wife. He was gutted. He said, I was so close to my mum, and now this? Add to that the scheme of which he was once feared and which he was kind of a linchpin in. Since he's become a Christian, he's now mocked and called a traitor. What is that? He's coming to us and saying, I don't even know who I am anymore. And we can say, do you know what? Don't be surprised. In fact, Jesus can empathize. He knows what it's like. He's felt that agony of isolation. He's wept those tears. Don't be surprised. But what is the logic that the Lord Jesus would want to tell this guy? How do we cope in that situation besides knowing that Jesus is with me in it? He knows what I'm going through. The logic is this, isn't it? Better to be at home in the kingdom of heaven and a stranger in your hometown than part of the furniture in your hometown but a stranger to the kingdom of heaven. That's the logic, isn't it? Better to have the pearl of great price plus nothing than have everything and not have the pearl. Better to take some heat in Nazareth than feel the fire of hell. Also, you can say to that guy, be patient. This isn't the last time we see Jesus' family in Matthew's Gospel. At the moment, they're outside but actually his mother is close at the cross. His brothers who are named, we see becoming part of the community in the early church. And so for this young man, we say, pray, stay faithful to Jesus, and long, pray that the Lord would bring them in rather than out. Do you see? Another application of we're Christians is this. Don't underestimate what you are asking someone to do when you hold out the gospel in evangelism. I think lots of us, when we're from Christian homes or we've been in the church for a long time, we forget what we're asking someone to do. That when you hold out the gospel, you are potentially inviting them to step away from everything. That's no small thing, right? 
The seed is a sword. The pearl has a price. That when you're inviting someone to come to Christ, it's an invitation away from their closest family and their closest community. So in the international cafe, when you're inviting someone from the other side of the world to come to Jesus, were they to accept Jesus, it may be stepping away from generations of ancestor worship. It's no small thing. When you invite that mum that you know to accept Christ, what are you potentially inviting her to? Yes, an invitation to come to Jesus, but maybe bringing her to the position where her husband insults and abuses her. What about that gay colleague at work who at the moment knows such tight and such close fellowship in the gay community? As you hold out the gospel, it's an invitation to them to say, you you may need to walk around from the very social fabric that has defined your whole existence. You remember that? Now that impacts how we then do discipleship with that person, doesn't it? Because if all we're offering, once they've stepped away from that to find Jesus, is one meeting on a Sunday and one meeting on a Wednesday, is that going to replace the community that they walked away from? We need to offer more. We need to be the family. We need to be the community. I think it's sobering, isn't it? That actually if we have an impact in this city... It's going to divide families. It's going to splinter communities. So when Sarah had a young boy walk up to her early this year and say, after the talk last week, I went home and told my mum I wanted to become a Christian. And her mum's response was, you are not allowed. How do you counsel that young guy? Do you say, ignore your mother, come to Christ? It's hard, isn't it? This is the truth of the gospel. It is a pearl of great price. You should come in. But the seed is a sort. The pearl has its price. Secondly, and not only application to believers, to Christians, but in writing this, Matthew is making a very deliberate application to his fellow Jews. Remember what the Jewish mindset was, their way of understanding religion and relationship to God. Much of it was defined by what family you come from, what nation you were a part of, what was your descent, your lineage. So what is Matthew doing by putting these parables and Jesus' family and Jesus' hometown side by side? He is saying that just because you are close to the Christian community doesn't mean that you are part of the kingdom of heaven. Even if you are related to Jesus, like his family, does not mean that you are part of the kingdom of heaven. To use the language of the parables, these parables in chapter 13, just because you are a bad fish, swimming in the same ocean as good fish, does not make you a good fish. Just because you are a weed living in the same field as a good harvest does not make you part of the good harvest. Do you see? And so he's saying to his fellow Jews, listen, just being close isn't good enough. 
the heart impacting questions of the parables is, how has your heart responded to the gospel? And so this morning, maybe it's an application to those of us in the fringe, on the edge of membership at Charlotte, maybe those of us who have grown up in Christian homes, to say, how has my heart responded to the gospel? Remember, all four of the seeds sown in the parable of the sower heard the gospel. That's not the question. The question is, how has my heart responded? Have you received it? Has it taken root in you? Is it growing in you? Is it bearing fruit in your life? So that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is not just something that I have heard, but it's something I've received. It is not just something that is a part of my existence. It's the pearl of my existence. What's very sobering about this section in Matthew's Gospel, we read Matthew 13, verse 54, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. This is the last time in Matthew's Gospel he will be seen teaching in a synagogue. What's Matthew saying? Uh, This bus doesn't stop at this stop again. So you better get on now. When Jesus walks out of Nazareth, he's not singing that song that's dedicated to Paul Walker, I'll see you again. It's, uh, no, I might not see you again. So you better respond now, today. There's an urgency because Jesus isn't coming past again. How have you responded? Finally, let me speak to you if you're not a Christian. What's helpful about this little text is it's not just Jesus speaking in a kind of classroom lecture format where he's at the front on a boat and everyone else is listening to him and it's in the form of didactic parables, teaching. But here you can see how Jesus interacts with people on a very one-to-one basis. What reaction did Jesus get? It's not abstract, a seed is sown. It's they meet him. So read with me chapter 13, verse 54, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Now look next, if you're not a Christian, notice this, look what they do not deny. Verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So it's not a question of, is he wise and does he have power? That's not the question. It's merely a question of where did he get them from? You see, his miracles were so public, so witnessed, they were undeniable. That's not at stake. What is the question they're asking is where? But look what they do next. How do they deny Jesus? They ask, verse 55, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? They ask the question again, where did this man get all these things? What is undeniable? What don't they deny? He was wise and he did miracles. But how do they react? Well, verse 57, they took offense at him. They were amazed, and yet they took offense. And what we see is actually their offense trumps 
the evidence. The questions they ask are not actually looking for answers. The questions they ask are just their blurred reasoning for having an excuse not to deal with Jesus. Asking these questions doesn't actually address the evidence that he was wise and he did miraculous things. For them, their offense trumps the evidence. Their heart is so consumed by being offended by him that it's deafened them to what he's actually said and blinded them to what he's actually done. Let me explain it this way. Often the accusation that flies at Christians is, oh, it's blind faith. You're ignoring all the evidence. Here, unbelief is blind. They see the evidence, but they refuse to look at it. It's not blind faith. It is blind unbelief. They are offended and so do not even engage with the fact that Jesus has done and said amazing things. It's a a strange line of argument. It's like trying to dismiss the footballing talent of Gareth Bale on the reasoning that his dad's a school caretaker. It makes no sense. But it's their own reasoning for saying, I don't want to deal with this, so I'll just be offended. Now, we don't know what the antagonism behind their offense was. You could reason a few things. One, maybe it was the kind of small town being outdone by this uneducated carpenter's boy. We don't like that. Maybe it was they, in their minds, had 30 years of entrenched gossip about his mother and the circumstances of his birth. How can she have the audacity to claim virginity and then have the further audacity to claim she's given birth to divinity? Maybe that's what they're reacting to. Maybe it was just hard work growing up around Mr. Perfect. Imagine what it was like growing up with Jesus. My sister got straight ones in her standard grades, straight A's in her hires. Imagine trying to follow that as her little brother. Little Miss Perfect. Dad said on her wedding day, I cannot remember a time when I had to tell Sarah off. How do you follow that? Living with, <laughs> living with Jesus must have been hard, right? Maybe that's what they're reacting to. But whatever it was, their offense at him clouded them looking actually at the evidence for him. Now when you read a lot of popular atheism, what you find is the guys writing are so offended by the idea of God that they never actually engage with the serious evidence for Christ. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, here's my plea to you. Here's, here's my dare for you. I plead with you, I dare you, for just a moment, put your offense at the idea of Jesus to one side, whatever it is, whether it's even just this idea of how much I would have to walk away from. Place it to one side and just seriously say, what is the evidence for what cannot be denied in this text? He was wise and he did miracles. I plead with you, read it, and try and answer the question, where where did he get this from? And you can question his pedigree like they did, but Matthew's very happy to engage with you on the pedigree. Go back to chapter 1, he'll say, I'll take you through that from 
his mother to the exile to David to Abraham. We can do that and show you, yeah, he, he is man in his pedigree. But beyond that, he is divine. Where did he get these things? He is the son of God. And here's the big story of Matthew's gospel. The son of God would willingly enter into not only the dishonor of being rejected in his hometown, but further into the dishonor and shame of hanging naked on a cross. Why? To cover your shame. The shame of all the deep rebellion in your heart towards God. That he says, I will willingly enter into your shame that you might become part of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to sing a song that has great lyrics. In my place. Is that their line? What do we sing? Man of sorrows. What a name. But there's a verse. I'm sure I wrote it down somewhere before the service because I remembered it. Bearing shame and scoffing roots in my place. Condemned he stood. As we see him enter into the shame of being rejected in Nazareth, it is pointing us to the shame of his cross, where he would say, I will stand here, I will hang here for you. That is a good story. But beyond that, it is good news. And he would say, you need to follow me. So let me pray, and then we'll stand and sing this great hymn together. Our Father in heaven, We thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this record of his life. Thank you for the concern that Matthew has taken to make this clear to us. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see the worthiness, the preciousness of this pearl and this treasure that would make, make us willing to follow Christ even into rejection and shame knowing that the kingdom that is to come is worth it oh father give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would do your will and we ask this in jesus name amen